Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comment. Please consider subscribing if you haven't already done so. I hope you had a good summer, and I hope you had a normal summer. The most normal summer you've had in the past couple of years. Because, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic is now over. And I pause, because that line, spoken right now, typically gets one of two reactions. Those who, I guess, nod in agreement, and those who strenuously object, who say it's not over just because you say it is. Well, which one is it? There are hardly any more COVID rules on the books, and for months now, life in Canada has gone on normally for the vast majority of people. Yet some people contend that this will change in the fall as respiratory virus season kicks in, and that things may take a turn for the worse. Is that accurate? Should we be concerned, or is this just fear-mongering? Maybe instead of pushing to bring back rules, should we push for inquiries into what happened the past two years? Do we need to talk about things, relitigate things, whether we made the right choices on a whole number of fronts, whatever your perspective? We've also begun something of a national conversation into our healthcare system, whether or not it's adequately equipped to deal with the challenges we face, COVID or otherwise, and if it's time for healthcare reform. Dr. Isaac Bogosh joins us now to discuss all this and more. He is a staff physician at Toronto General Hospital who was on the front lines of COVID throughout it all and became a familiar face on television and radio to Canadians seeking help and advice navigating the pandemic. Dr. Bogosh, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Anthony. Really happy to chat. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll throw the, I guess, the both super tough but super simple question. Is the COVID-19 pandemic right now over? So, short answer, no, it's not. Longer answer, we're in a much better place right now than we were a year ago and two years ago. And you can't act like it's 2020 anymore and you can't act like it's 2021 anymore. But it's still here. We had a summer wave. Um, it wasn't as significant from a healthcare utilization standpoint as other prior waves, but it's still here. And I think if we say that it's over, it might, well, I think it conveys an inaccurate message just because there aren't, there, there aren't really any uh, mandates or uh, we're not seeing much in the way of uh, public health restrictions and public health measures, that, that doesn't mean the infection ceases to exist. It's here. We're having waves. It's impacting people. It's impacting our healthcare system. And I think we can have open, honest, transparent conversations about, you know, what it is, how to protect ourselves, how to protect those around us, how to ensure that we can live as normal a life as, as possible, but still acknowledge that it is here and still is impacting us. What's the difference between saying the pandemic is still happening and saying, well, there's this new respiratory virus on the scene. I wish it didn't exist or I wish it went away, but we know it's pretty much here to stay. And now it's just in the backdrop of our lives like these other viruses. Is that the same thing or are those two different things to say? I think it's, it's a lot of semantics and a lot of nuance. Um, and again, just because you say the pandemic, if someone says the pandemic is still here, that doesn't mean that we should, you know, jump right to, you know, make a, a connection, say, oh, lockdown or anything like that. No, of course not. It just acknowledges that the, the virus is still here. The virus is still around. There are still waves. Um, we're still having, you know, people get sick and die from it and to a higher rate than other uh, other viruses and other other ailments. Like it still is a significant issue in Canada, whether we want to acknowledge it or not is a different story. But like if you were to walk through the hospitals or look at the death certificates or look at who's impacted by this, it's still having an impact. It absolutely is. You know, and, and in the same sentence, I'll say it's having much less of an impact now 
as it did before. We're in a much better place and a much different place. And of course, the rules and the regulations and the policies have to adapt uh, to the current situation and to the updated science. But still, it's still here. And, you know, obviously, we've had debates, what is pandemic? What is endemic? You know, if we want to call this endemic, we could, but endemic still means, uh, you know, significant disruptions on our healthcare system and significant impact on on uh, individuals and communities, particularly vulnerable individuals in more vulnerable communities. So would you say that what we could perhaps see this fall and this winter would be greater than what you think we're going to see with COVID-19 for the next 10 or 20 years? Or are you saying that what we're going to see this coming fall is what we should get used to seeing for quite some time with this particular virus in terms of volume of of deaths and and, and hospital capacity? I honestly don't know the answer to that. I really don't. I mean, uh, short term is a lot easier to predict than longer term. But over the short term, listen, we know that, for example, in Canada, we've got a few things that we have to contend with. Number one, yeah, at some point in the late fall, we'll probably see a rise in COVID. I think that's pretty clear. There's definitely some seasonal variation to this. So that's going to happen. Number two, we're going to see other respiratory viruses, including the flu. Like you look at the Southern Hemisphere, that's often an imperfect but still somewhat decent um, metric for what we're going to see in the Northern Hemisphere during our winter. And they had a pretty decent flu season, not decent, a pretty uh, impactful flu season in Australia, for example, especially when we compare it to the last couple of years where it was largely absent. So we're going to see flu and other respiratory viruses. We know that brings people into hospital as well. Then on top of that, you know, we've got other strains on our healthcare system uh, that we have even before COVID, like every winter, every winter, you'd always see the headlines, you know, hallway medicine's an issue or we're overwhelmed. So we, 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 we have to add that onto the existing pressures of the healthcare system. And then on top of that, I mean, it's not a secret that healthcare has been a really challenging place to work in over the last two and a half years. We had a ton of people leave. We have tremendous staffing uh, challenges. So we just don't have the same capacity to manage even smaller waves. So we're going to have a wave. I can't tell you how big it's going to be, but we're going to have one. But it's tough right now when it shouldn't be that tough. And if you fast forward a few months when it's going to get tougher, I mean, we still have to provide Canadians with the health care that they deserve. It's just harder and harder to do it with all the pressures and fewer hands on deck. How should Canadians then conceptualize what's going to happen then? Because when you referenced before COVID, there were the headlines, this hospital or or Ontario hospitals in general overwhelmed at 110%, whatever the number was. And I don't think Canadians were unsympathetic uh, to to people in your position who are dealing with these volumes. But I think it was kind of like, all right, well, that doesn't really have too much to do with my specific daily life, unless, of course, I happen to go to the hospital and uh, face a really long uh, wait time and I'm frustrated by it. But it was seen as this other thing happening somewhere else. Yet, of course, the past two years, the idea of hospitals being overwhelmed was something that was seen as, as our collective burden to bear and, and manage and, and, and restrictions are brought in. When we talk about upcoming hospital challenges, is this really a, a sectoral specific issue that is about government providing adequate services or and, and the public can, can no longer, well, let's face it, be, be stressed out about it, have, have anxiety over it? How do we respond to it? 
Yeah, there's lots of different ways. One is we can ignore it and stick our head in the sand and just hope it gets better. But we know that's obviously not, not going to be a successful approach. The other one is to see, you know, we're obviously talking about healthcare and the, and the hospital sector, but it extends well beyond the hospital sector into other aspects of healthcare as well. And we know people have had tremendous difficulty reaching their primary care provider or other healthcare, or public health, whatever their healthcare needs are. So it, it, the whole healthcare sector is, is stretched. And then, of course, it extends well beyond that. We know that this has impacted every other sector as well. We've had, um, you know, uh, staff absences due to illness, outbreaks in, uh, in you know, indoor settings and office settings as well. So, again, like, this is not doom and gloom, not at all. Like, really, truly, I, I can't stress this enough. Things are so much better now than they were before. There's excellent evidence to suggest that. It's just that I think if we keep pretending that it's 2019, we're going to get smoked again and again. And we can take some simple steps to create safer indoor spaces to protect ourselves, to protect those around us so that this just has less of an impact. We're not going to stop waves, we're not, but we can limit their impact on, on us and, and, and our communities. Um, so like it, it is here, but, but again, like let's just take a step back and look at the last three waves. You had a winter wave, which was awful. That was Omicron. Everybody got it. It was terrible. Uh, and then you had a, a, a spring wave that was also Omicron BA2. No mitigation efforts. Kids were still in school, but like between our really, really high vaccination rates in Canada, plus a lot of people having previously been infected rather, rather recently, you had like from a healthcare standpoint, you know, a much smaller wave, like a really small wave. And again, no, very little in the way of mandates, very few masks, uh, no restrictions on how many people in indoor spaces. And, you know, you had a wave, but it wasn't nearly as significant as the, the prior one. And we just we're coming out of a summer wave now. It's, uh, summer, we have a BA5 wave. Again, very little in the way of restrictions. Yeah, I get it. It's summer. Kids are out of school. People are spending time outside. But again, like so many people have been infected and recovered, plus or minus have been vaccinated. Uh, that we just see an impact, but just much less of an impact of, of this wave. So I think we have to think of this as, listen, we, we're a very highly vaccinated country. Yeah, there's room for improvement on boosters and in vulnerable populations. But in general, we're, we're doing pretty good. Yeah, we don't want anyone to get infected, but we can't ignore that a ton of people have been infected and recovered from infection, uh, especially over the last six months. And that really goes a long way to building up community level protection and community level immunity such that when we have the next wave that rolls through town, it just has less and less impact at a societal level. And we saw that over the last two waves, very little restrictions, very little mandates, two sizable waves rolled through town. And yeah, of course, people got sick. That was sad. Some people died. That's sad. But it, from a healthcare system standpoint, from a death standpoint, it just was a much smaller wave versus prior waves. So, Dr. Bogosh, does the general public kind of know what they need to do now in terms of the if you're sick, stay home, something that a lot of people say we should have been doing that a bit more in the, in the before times anyway, in terms of that. People say, oh, no, I can soldier in the office. I can I can do it. Yeah, OK, please, don't. please stay home that. And then people who are high risk, I, I think we've been talking about it for two years, they can adequately identify whether they are or not, and then they can respond accordingly. And then when it comes to, for instance, something I'm very passionate about, kids and COVID rules. I don't want my kids to even hear the phrase COVID again, you know, the, the small yeah. children. Zero rules, zero, just leave them alone and we'll just figure it all out. Is that 
something we can do here? I mean, are we are we informed enough that the people who need to do things a little differently are, are now empowered to do so? And that's that's kind of it. I think we're getting there, but I'd say there's a couple of points there. I mean, I agree with some of that. I don't agree with all of that, but I, I think there's, right. you know, on the one hand, yeah, we are probably way more health literate right now as a country compared to, you know, 2019, right? We're having public conversations of words like mRNA and <laughs> rapid test. And it's like, did you ever dream in a million years you'd hear public debates over brands of vaccines? Like this is pretty impressive. So yeah, on the one hand, sure, we're much more health literate and savvy, especially in the realm of public health and infectious diseases as a country. So that's one point. The second point is we also see the tremendous and profound negative impact of misinformation and disinformation from a well-funded anti-science movement. And again, I'm not saying that's impacting everybody, but that does impact a proportion of, of Canadian society and makes things more challenging. Number three. What specifically do you we, do you mean by that? Because I I, I, okay. I hear these words bandied about a lot: misinformation, disinformation, and it's always interesting to drill down and say, what, what are we talking about here? Sure. Uh, basically, misinformation meaning unintended but wrong information about COVID, science, vaccines, etc. Disinformation meaning purposeful, meaningful, right. uh, false information, subverting. Uh, public health, science, medicine, and and creating mistrust. And again, it's here. We can't ignore it. It's here. It's amplified on social media, and it, it's a problem. I'm not saying it's a problem for 100% of Canadians, but there are some that will listen to this and make poor decisions for themselves, whatever that may be, and it might cause harm to themselves or others. So I would say there's we're we're very well. We, we've got certainly more health. Point one, a lot of health literacy. Part two, we can't ignore misinformation, disinformation. And part three, I think one of the more important parts too is we've got different senior political and public health leaders saying different things. Right. And I think that causes confusion in the general public that leads to mistrust. And at the end of the day, people tune out. And if we had reasonable and how, yeah, look, good luck, we're going to define reasonable uh, but reasonable, coordinated messaging that's science-driven, that's data-driven, that's reflective of whatever we want to agree upon is what Canada wants to do collectively, which, again, is hard to do. I think that would go a long way. But you've got, you know, Dr. A saying this, Dr. B saying something totally different, you know, uh, public arguments and spats and, and, and policies that are contradictory. We have a lot of policies that are out of date as well. And, you know, the public's not stupid. They can see this. Uh, and, and I think that fuels a lot of mistrust and people tune out. And, uh, and that's a problem because obviously we want common sense rules. We want rules that are updated. We want meaningful policy to protect individuals and, 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 and communities. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's going to be a time where we're going to say, you know what, hey, everyone should get this booster vaccine and, and we want reasonable uptake for that. But if people have tuned out, um, you know, they, we're just we're just not going to see people make smart decisions for themselves or others. And, and sadly, I think there's a lot of that. Yeah. Misinformation, I guess, from from one category, from, you know, random online voices who are not credentialed to talk about what they're talking about. But 
I want to get your thoughts on, I guess, in, when, when you talk about doctors being inconsistent in what they're saying or, or disagreeing with each other, I don't know if misinformation is the term, but people overselling things. Uh, I yep. felt there was a lot of frustrations. I had a lot of frustrations with, again, talking about kids and COVID, really almost yep. looking to, to, to ham up the severity of the issue with children. Yeah. You just weren't allowed. I know you weren't allowed to say, you know, COVID is, COVID is not as bad as the flu or COVID is no worse than the flu kind of thing. Uh, but when it came to children, the data set kind of has consistently shown that was more or less accurate when it came to uh, deaths. A lot of things, particularly around the kids' numbers, lots of fighting over that. And one kind of goes, yeah. I, I wish we could have talked about these numbers more openly rather than doing, uh, the Ontario Science Table had, had the phrase, I know they didn't invent the phrase, but behavioral sciences, nudging to, I guess, I don't know what you call it, stretch the truth a little bit to, I guess, make people not let their guard down. I think we just got to be honest, right? Just be honest. And, and you know, obviously, uh, open, transparent conversations about what the data is. But here's what we see. We see a lot of, you know, preconceived, or we see a lot of these ideology-based uh, decisions and, and opinions, and people will cherry-pick data to suit their preconceived ideology. And that's unfortunate because, you know, you see people digging in their heels, uh, you know, a lot of disagreements over policies uh, and people using, you know, cherry pick data to drive certain policies. And it's, it's unfortunate because like, you know, we can take a look at what data is available, determine the quality of the data. Not all data is created the same you know, have open discussions about it doesn't mean you're anti-vax or anti-science or anti-this or anti-that. Just have a meaningful discussion about what the data shows and, and make reasonable policy around it. Like with kids, kids is a great example. That's a great example. Like, obviously, kids can get COVID. We know that. Obviously, kids can transmit COVID. We know that. All the data available shows that kids just don't get as sick compared to older adults. They don't. They just don't. Yes, some kids can get sick, and that's really sad. And we don't want them to. Of course, we don't want anyone to. But compared to older cohorts, kids just don't get as sick pound for pound as adults. It's okay to say that. It's okay to acknowledge that. The other thing that's okay to say and okay to acknowledge is, you know, the vaccines will reduce that already really small risk of severe illness pretty significantly. They do. They, they just do. And there's great data to back that up. People get mad saying, oh, God forbid we should vaccinate the kids. But they do. It's also okay to say that these vaccines are really, really good, but of course they're not perfect. Nothing's perfect. And we can talk about what the uh, waning immunity means over time, what the uh, risk of adverse events is, including myocarditis. Like these are, you just have to have open and transparent conversations without cherry pick data to give people a good idea of what, you know, what the science shows, how the policy is created from the science. So that people can make smart decisions for themselves. Once you start selectively using data or buffing up one area or, uh, you know, negatively discussing another area that you might disagree with, right. I think, again, people lose trust, they dig in, and, and then you've lost the public, and, and here we are. Well, I think the vaccine issue, and, and tell me if you agree or disagree, is one of those issues where there was risk of waning trust based on the the almost absolutism with which it was discussed and the aggressiveness with which it was pushed, and we didn't give people breathing room about it and didn't give them room to talk it out. A phrase that was said quite a lot and is now kind of teased by a lot of people is the, the safe and effective mantra. And I just think what those terms mean have, have changed. When we first said, when we first heard that the vaccines were safe and effective, I think effective back then when it was first rolled out, meant it, it stops transmission. It just halts this thing in its tracks. Well, we found out that's inaccurate. 
when the phrase safe was first rolled out, well, that was before we pulled AstraZeneca for under 40, before we pulled Moderna in, what is it, under 30 males. I mean, okay, well, what we mean by safe has shifted because we've clearly determined that some catchments, some criteria not safe for some individuals. So again, we've kind of eroded the way we use these phrases. So can we talk about this more openly now? So like anything else, there's a lot to chat here, but in general, like anything else, you talk about what, what is the benefit, what is the risk, what are the alternatives, and what is the context? Uh, you know, AstraZeneca is a great example, right? I mean, this was a t- it was rolling out during the third wave. If you talk to people who work in hospitals, I'm not going to put words in other people's mouths. Sure. But that was by far the lowest point of the pandemic for many of us that work in the hospitals. We were just getting destroyed. The ICUs were overflowing. It's not every day. <laughs> Never in my life have I heard about adults admitted to pediatric ICUs, tents set outside, uh, set up outside a hospital right. because we didn't have enough beds. Bringing in healthcare providers from other provinces, we Ontario was getting pummeled in the spring of 2021. So when you're having a conversation about AstraZeneca, you have to talk about what are the benefits. Yeah, this is going to keep you out of hospital. It will. What are the risks? Yeah, there is a risk. And it's, you know, there's a range, probably about one in 60 to one in 80,000 of a pretty severe blood clot. That's that's there. What is the context? Well, your healthcare system is disintegrating around you. There's COVID everywhere and we're dropping like flies. And that doesn't just mean you're at risk, vulnerable populations. We were admitting, you know, 20, 30, 40 year olds to the hospital as well during that time. Uh, And that's appropriate context. And then the alternatives, the alternatives were, well, you can, if you're lucky enough and you, you can wait it out, if you can isolate, not everyone has the privilege to isolate, maybe you'll, you won't get COVID. But th- those are things, those, you have to have open conversations and contextualize it. But yeah, of course, when you have the gift of mRNA vaccines and alter- other alternatives and there's lower rates and your hospital system is under much better control and you have more capacity, sure, you can have different conversations. Same is true for... Um, uh, you had to, I was, I'm just losing it. Uh, I forget which one you were saying. You had another great example. But uh, AstraZeneca, I believe, was, was one of them. Like, yeah, the other one being Moderna pulled for, for males under 30 yeah. uh, nationwide. Absolutely. And, oh, the other one, too, is um, the risk of transmission. Listen, if you're asking that question about, you know, COVID vaccines reduce transmission, and you ask, you know, in December of 2020 and in early 2021, we were dealing with the ancestral strain of COVID. And when we were dealing with the alpha variant uh, in the spring of 2021, and I would say to some extent, even during uh, later on in the year when we had our Delta variant, yes, that was accurate. The vaccines really did have very good protection against reducing your risk of getting this infection. No, it's not perfect, but it was good. And they really significantly reduce your risk of onward transmission. But that all changed with Omicron. I mean, Omicron changed the game. That just the 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 rate of protection that these vaccines had against infection and onward transmission declined substantially with the Omicron variant, which really emerged around December of 2021 and which we currently have now. Okay, it's not like they do nothing, but they do very little uh, compared to what they did before for protection against infection and transmission. I would say they still do a remarkable job in protecting us against severe infection. But yeah, if you're you, like, like you point out, if your policy is created to 
say, listen, we're, 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 we want vaccines here because we want to stop transmission. I'm sorry. It, it just doesn't cut it. Like you can reduce your risk of transmission, but to a much, much, much smaller extent compared to before. So again, open, honest conversations about what they do, what they don't do, and appreciating that things change with time as the virus changes and as we accrue more data. Let's get Dr. Isaac Bogosh's thoughts on university COVID mandates right after this break. For children in Ontario, they will face no mandatory COVID rules in elementary schools, in high schools. As a parent, I'm I'm appreciative of that. I'm glad they don't have to wear the masks and face other rules. But if they're going to some universities in Ontario, they actually will face mask mandates at a few universities. And Western University getting the most headlines for having the most, I guess, stringent rules, we should say, a booster mandate in addition to a mask mandate. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, what do you think of universities going a bit rogue from provincial recommendations and saying we're going to bring in these stricter rules? Well, I tease it apart. I talk about masks differently than vaccines. When we talk about the vaccines, well, for starters, I think we are, you know, moving away from the mandate era. And, and obviously, that's a, in my value judgment, is that's a good direction to be moving in. Uh, and I will come out and publicly say that I very much agree that people should be vaccinated. They absolutely should be. But, you know, I think like anything else, we need to know what is what like what's the goal? What are we trying to accomplish here? You know, we're dealing with, for example, in universities, 18 to 22 year olds. Like, is the risk here to prevent more serious infection in that population? Well, you know, these are individuals who've had two doses of a vaccine. And most of them have had an infection and recovered from infection. So, how many like, of that age cohort of, did you see in hospital? How many nineteen-year-old like, boys and girls did you otherwise encounter? healthy? Yeah, like otherwise healthy, two-dose vaccination, eighteen to twenty-two-year-olds, like without underlying medical conditions, close to zero. Right. I think. Yeah, and 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 some have underlying medical conditions. We can't ignore people with under. Like I would never exclude them. And those people, you know, sadly, those individuals are overrepresented um, in in hospital right. people with medical comorbidities. So, but uh, without medical comorbidities, very few, few to none, who have been vaccinated. The other interesting thing, though, is you know, if the goal is to reduce transmission, yeah, I think you can acknowledge that the vaccines and the boosters still reduce transmission, but just to a much, much, much smaller extent. They do to, to, compared to before. So you're not getting nearly the same bang for your buck in terms of reducing transmission. And I think, you know, when you're saying third dose, we, there's just more and more evidence uh, pointing in the direction that people who have had two doses plus infection uh, really have, you know, based on I'm time stamping this to, you know, August and September of 2022. But you really have this. It's, it's almost equivalent, if not equivalent to three doses of a vaccine so you know you sort of have to ask yourself what's the what's the goal of this policy and does this policy accomplish what we're we're setting it out to do and you, you think too i mean again i think these vaccines are in general safe but yeah you can't ignore that there are side effects associated with them however rare and again people will debate about what the actual rate is but we know that myocarditis is the risk is greater than zero, especially in younger, younger men. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think we can acknowledge that as well. So when we were making a policy, uh, I, I want to look at, you know, what do we try to accomplish here? What are the and, and how can we do this? I mean, listen, and obviously, university is a very different setting than, for example, I don't know, 
a long-term care facility or a hospital. Like, so I think the, you, you've got to have the right policy for the right, for the right area, but nuanced conversations, looking at what the goals are and creating a policy to achieve those goals is the right, right thing to do with total transparency as to how you're doing it. Dr. Borgach, looking back, do you believe that we pretty much made the right choices? I mean, I've, I've written, I've argued that we do need some sort of investigations, public inquiries, only because of the gravity of what happened the past two years, both in terms of the health crisis and that, that we did unprecedented edicts in, in our lives, things that governments really haven't done uh, before in, in modern history. And uh, I was always a big advocate for giving people a bit more breathing room. If whatever the number of diehard uh, unvaccinated people are, 9% of people, they really, really don't want this thing for whatever reason. Okay, just give them a bit of space. I don't think we necessarily need to box them in as much as we did or, you know, like a small number of people just didn't want to wear the mask in the grocery store. Okay, we don't need to call the cops. It's not a good use of resources kind of thing. Do you feel yeah. confident with the, the advice and the recommendations and, and the things that happened, that th- th- those more extreme things, the, you know, you can't have your uncle over for dinner at, at this particular period of COVID? Yeah. So I think for starters, yeah, in general, I think it's a very important thing to look back and study this. And if we can do this with some objectivity, we'll be doing something right. What I fear is that <laughs> that's the caveat. We're not, there's no know. way. Well, that's exactly it. Like if we can have conversations in good faith about this, I think we can generate a lot of meaningful discussion because, and we need to, because we're going to face this again, whether we like it or not, this is not going to be the last pandemic. And, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. And what, what, what time to- horizon are you talking about here? I wish I knew, but like, come on, look in the last 20 years, you had SARS. That wasn't a pandemic, but that was bad. No you mandates, had, no lockdowns, uh, no restrictions. It was hospital based. It wasn't a community. Right. It, this was not a global event. This was largely hospital based in, uh, in Toronto. Uh, so different infection and, and, th- and therefore different rules, but you've had SARS. You've had a big, a big Ebola viruses out of uh, uh, epidemics way outside of areas that we previously thought that we would see them. You've had Zika throughout all of South America where, you know, it hadn't been seen before. You had the Middle Eastern respiratory virus pop up in many different places, including South Korea. You've had an H1N1, the forgotten pandemic that started on a pig farm somewhere and spread around the world. Like you could see we, we have the recipe uh, of encroachment on environments, environmental degradation, uh, blah, 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 where viruses can jump into humans, humans, move all over the world quickly. And if you have a transmissible respiratory virus, you can have another pandemic. No one argues in the business. No one argues that that's, you know, a non, a non-issue. This is something that we think about a lot, even before COVID. So we're going to have to figure out what to do with the next one. And we have to also come to terms with some of the decisions that I think were the right move at the right time and others that might've been disastrous. And I think others too, that might have, you know, maybe it was initially the right move, but then we sat on these policies long past their expiration date, and we didn't evolve with uh, uh, the uh, evolving science or situation on the ground. I mean, here's a small one. And again, people might yell and scream at me for this one, but like, look at the Arrive Can app, okay? Like, obviously, there's bigger fish to fry, but this is just one little thing that bothers me. Like, you know, maybe you could argue at a time and place that that was the right thing. They could get some meaningful data from this. It, it, it would help screen people coming into the country. 
But, like, do we really need an Arrive Can app right now? I don't think so. I think it's time for this one to go. And, again, that's small potatoes compared to other big policies. But I'm just saying, like, we, we could really apply this to a lot of different areas and, 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 and learn some big lessons. Uh, but I think the big thing is, can we do this in an objective manner? I have zero confidence that we can. But if, if we can, and if we can get, you know, 20 smart people in a room from very different backgrounds, maybe 100 smart people in a room from very different backgrounds to critically, uh, to critically appraise our policies over time, look at what went well, what didn't go well from in a very objective manner. I think we can learn a lot from this. And it is interesting, though. That's important. I think there's an underpinning philosophical divide of, of those who believe that when you're facing a health crisis, whatever the severity, yes, the state should be doing these things, can do them moving forward, or those who say, absolutely not, this was a once only and it's done. Danielle Smith joined us on this podcast a number of episodes ago to say that one of the main reasons she was running for Premier of Alberta was to make sure there can never be lockdowns and heavy-handed restrictions again, uh, whatever the issue. And, and I, I support that sentiment. I, I support protecting the vulnerable, shoring up the healthcare, more allocation sure. of resources. And I think she, not to speak for her, but I think she said similar things, but I'm all on board with the, never those sorts of things again. And I think you, you're going to be able to get people who are highly intelligent and inform people in that room and have a yeah. full split on that question I put forward. And it's an irrevocable split. But I think the other point though, is like, we're sort of approaching this with a COVID mindset, but like, why does it have to be COVID? And again, let's think about a theoretical situation that it's a much more virulent, powerful, damaging virus, like, uh, you know, the 1918 uh, flu epidemic that killed well over 50 million people. Then we'll see like, our neighbors well, die and we'll go, oh, crap, I'm not going outside because I don't want to. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But then you think about what about essential workers who, you know, have no you know, that, that have to go to work or people that can't afford to stay home. I mean, I, I just think we have to think about very different scenarios. Like if right. you have something with, I'm just making it up. What if it's got a, you know, there's bird flus that have, you know, 10 to 20% mortality rates. Like that's catastrophic. And I'm not saying it's going to happen, right. but I'm saying that people that look at epidemics and pandemics are watching this really closely. Uh, you know, we just have to make the right decisions for the right situation and for the in the right context and it's not all going to be COVID. and i'm not saying COVID was a cakewalk right all the models think estimate that over the last two two and a half years there's been about you know 18 to 22 million deaths related to COVID. like that's not anything to sneeze at that's absolutely horrible it's absolutely horrible and in the same breath we can also say hey there you know lockdowns as horrible as those are you know could probably reduce some transmission in the community but also have terrible negative consequences, which they do. I mean, like, it's okay to say that because it's true. Dr. Borgosh, before we go, I want to get your thoughts on our conversation about national health care. For the longest time, for many years, we we sort of looked down upon parts of the American healthcare system and we had a, a bit of a narrative about the Canadian healthcare system. But I know when we talked about Ontario, very aggressive lockdowns, a fourth lockdown, January 2022. Uh, Florida, none of it. And then there was a lot of politicizing, a lot of mocking about you know Republicans in Florida. But ultimately, it seemed to come down to the fact that in Florida, they said, well, we have the beds. You know, we encourage you to get vaccinated and take your precautions. But if you get sick, we can we can care for you. In Ontario, we said if there are 300 people in ICUs with COVID across the whole province, we got to shut everything down. We got to shut the schools down. It's like, Wow. Do we maybe have a oh, yeah. little bit of a resources problem here? 
we have a huge resources problem here. There, I used to work in the States. I used to work in Boston. One of the hospitals I used to work in, Massachusetts General Hospital, where I did a lot of my training, uh, basically added a, you know, turned their hospital into a giant ICU uh, during one of their nastier waves. And there was a time where that hospital had uh, basically more ICU beds than the province of Alberta, right? Like one wow. hospital in Boston had more ICU capacity than Alberta. That's crazy. I mean, it is. It, it is absolutely nuts. And to your point, I mean, the fact that we had to collectively crap our pants when we were over 300 people, you know, admitted to ICUs with COVID-related illness in Ontario because we just weren't going to have the healthcare resources to care for people. Like, that's a problem. That's a problem. And actually, I just like we chatted about earlier, the third wave, which, again, wow, was that bad. We had 900 people in Ontario ICUs at one point in time with COVID-related illness. I can't tell you how horrible and awful that was because the standard of care that Canadians deserve went down. I mean, we were just working like dogs, and, and it was it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. So we definitely have capacity issues uh, in terms of bed per capita, ICU beds per capita. We need, we need to retain uh, healthcare providers, especially nurses. We need to train more healthcare providers, including doctors and nurses, but the other allied healthcare providers. I think we need to be creative about this as well. We can talk about uh, facilitating credentialing uh, healthcare providers that might have trained overseas that aren't working here well, of course, maintaining the standards of care and the standard of, uh, of education. Um, you know, I know privatization is a bad word in, in many in many areas, but I think Canadians would be shocked to hear that there already is privatization within the Canadian healthcare system within, you know, some with some regards. Obviously, it's not rampant. Uh, I think obviously if we look, you know, we look at the United States and get terrified, but there's other models that aren't the United States uh, that that may work in in Canada. And obviously the United States is not the healthcare system to model ours after. There would be others that we could look at that may do this more successfully. But of course, at the same breath, we have to keep healthcare for everyone. We can't provide um, you know, uh, substandard care for people that might not be able to afford it. We have to work on accessibility and we really have to ensure that all 38 million of us have timely access to high quality health care. That's a nice platitude to say. And I know people have been talking about this for decades. I'm not going to pretend to have the right answer to get there. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, thanks very much for all you do. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. It's really great to chat with you, Anthony. Great conversation. All the best. Great. Thanks for your time, Isaac. I appreciate it. That went well. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care. Take Have a care, good guys. day. Have a good weekend. Be well. Be well. See you, Andrew. Thank you. Full Comment is a Post Media Podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.